Welcome to the Down About Down podcast from County Down, Northern Ireland, with your host Chris Scott, for your ears only. Welcome along to another edition of the Down About Down podcast and County Down here in Northern Ireland with me, your host Chris Scott. Thank you for joining me again and thank you for lending me your ears. And in this podcast, I'm in conversation with published author Graham McClemens, also an accomplished chef and radio broadcaster in this part of the world. Graham has had his own show on local community radio, FM 105 Down Community Radio, based here in Down Patrick for a number of years. Graham, who's already published two recipe books in the past, joins me to chat about his first novel, part of his life story, called Laugh Now, Cry Later. I'm going to welcome onto the podcast. I used to say program, Graham, because we know all about radio and stuff like that there. But this now is a podcast. And I'm Graham McClemens. Graham, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Chris. A delight and pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Now, Graham, you're also known as Big G as well for, for lots of those other listeners out there. Yes, this is very true. And I don't know why they call me Big G. I don't think it's anything to do with my height, weight or size. <laughs> We'll just leave it there, just park that one there. Graham, you recently have published a book, and not only that, this is your third book, I believe. It is, but it's my first novel. It's the third book, but this one is actually a novel. Chris, uh, first couple of books have been mainly recipes. This is more a bit of a life story. It's called Laugh Now, Cry Later, and I, I, I mean, we were on social media, and I, I had no idea that you were even doing anything like this. Yeah, well, it's it's been a project, to be honest, for the last couple of years, uh, where I just thought a lot of the stuff that's been on in my life, a lot of people have said, you know, you should put that in words. So I felt, well, you know, the last couple of years, I'm kind of semi-retired, almost retired now, so I thought, you know, it'd be something to do just to keep an interest, keep my hand, keep my mind active as well. So, Graham, yeah, I, look at the, I looked at the cover online, and I've seen this picture that I... I knew what it was. It was a sleeve donor hotel, and I thought, what in the name of goodness is all that about? But the whole story's here, and we're going to come back to that. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you, Graham. I don't, I'm not a great reader, okay? If it's a history book, I can get that bound and out of. I'm researching something, I'll do that, but not a novel. I picked this up. I got it on Amazon. It came here on Saturday. I had half of it read on Saturday afternoon, and I finished it on, on Sunday. And I went, wow, you know... And I'm not just saying that because you're here. It was a great read and I have, to, I have to compliment you on it. But this is a very personal story about your life. True. Uh, because in truth, there's there's no other way you can read it except truthfully. Uh, when I started it, it just started as an exercise for myself. Uh, I hadn't thought about sharing it. But as I say, I had a friend who was a school teacher. I handwrit the first you know, 10 chapters. Uh, and then I, you know, I let her read it one night just by way of something to do in the house and she said you know I think you should tape it up which I then had a sister-in-law who started to tape it for me but I was sending her the my handwritten stuff she was sending it back typed and then I thought she said we just go onto your computer and do it so I went on my own computer and I just started typing it and I just found it was something I thoroughly enjoyed doing and I really enjoyed remembering because over the years I've kept notes about things that have happened and I just thought you know something I can use all my notes you kept notes. What, what do you mean, like a diary, or what? 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 What do you mean by that? Not, not necessarily a diary, but just from time. I, like I would be a great one for believing in photographs. Mm. I have a great collection of photographs, 
And on the back of some of the photographs, I would write oh, the day we played tennis, you know, and the date or the day I started in the hotel. Uh, and there was things that were highlighted, like the first pair of chef's trousers that I wore that my mum made for me. Uh, and at the time, like, it was a big adventure, you know, so they had taken a photograph before I'd left the house of me and my chef's outfit. And then when you get into the job the first day, and you walk through the door and you get, whew, dog's abuse for wearing these stupid gingham trousers. <laughs> you discover that it's not the same kind of check that chefs wear. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there, there's photographs with notes and, uh, you know, I'd written it. Uh, I would have kept recipe books over the years. And sometimes I'd write down things that happened in the kitchen that would maybe help me the next time I'm in the same situation or I could check it up and say, I must remember not to do A, B, C, D. And just over the years, as I said, it's not big notebooks. Or like I didn't write it there because I wasn't one that type of person, but just highlighted some of the things that happened in certain times. And when I started writing this, and I, I've come across them with, with the photographs, it became part of my memories, and I realised, oh, I should write a bit about that, and especially when it was about the family and about different people that I was involved with over the years. Do you think, Graham? At, at a time in life when, you know, you go through decade after decade that you've come to a stage in life now where everyone's nostalgic. I'm, an old man, I'm not going to relate this to you, but an old man said to me once, Chris, I'm not going to look forward to a look back. Does that make does that make sense or not? Yeah, I, I would say, it's, you know, maybe subconsciously that's the way I was thinking. I don't know. Uh, I would hate to say I've nothing to look forward to. I think that's quite final. But uh, memories are a great, great thing. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with memories. Uh, I would certainly like to think of things to look forward to as far as, you know, grandkids and, you know, even ambitions I would still have. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I would say it's partly true because when you when you get to my age, you know, I'm retired now, and after, especially after writing the book, where you do get nostalgic and you think, oh, that, you know, they were memories, they were things that happened to me and they became part of to get me to where I am today. I, I, I you're, were you a 50s child? Would, I be, would that be right for me to say that? I was born in 1955. Yeah. So, uh, looking at this book, and you, you look at a process of your life, so you put a couple of lines together, and it says in a, at the age of 14 you became a chef. What took you into that? You know something, at 14, and I could have went in earlier, being truthful, I applied for a job in Crossroads Motel when I was 10 on TV. Yeah, yeah, dee, 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 Meg Mortimer and, yeah. and Sandy. But what what do you mean you what do you mean you played? They were looking for a chef and trainees at the time, and it was on TV. And I thought it was a real hotel. And I, I from I was nine years of age, I wanted to be a chef, which I've explained in the book. And I and I remember the and I wrote to them at ATV saying if I could get a job as a trainee. <laughs> but you know, I was a changed mentality. But I always wanted to be a chef from when I was nine. Never wanted to be anything else. And when I went to school, in them days, you used to have to get, uh, as long as you had French, English and math, you could get into catering college. So they were the three job subjects I studied at to get, which I got. Did, did you see your mum cooking? I mean, was that something that you were in the kitchen helping out with then at that stage? Because it wouldn't really appeal to me at 10, 12, 14 years of age. Truthfully, no. I wanted to be a chef because of Crossroads Motel. I heard the head chef telling the owner to get out of the kitchen, and I thought, wow, <laughs> I want that kind of power. <laughs> and that's, that's being truthful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And uh, so I studied to be, but I always I loved the idea of being a chef. I thought the idea of somebody that I could be in a kitchen and I could cook a meal where one person, two people or 200 people would say that was good. You know, that is, you know, it's a gift. And it's a gift that I've always wanted to have. And it's a gift that I'm thankful I was successful at doing and I could do. And and I, it got me accolades, so. Isn't that amazing? So you're talking probably about 1969 Catering College. Where was the Catering College or where is the Catering College? Where, where, is that the same place now? No. I signed up for the College of uh, it was the Rupert Stanley College. I went up to, I went every Wednesday day release. I went up the second Wednesday I was there and it was laying in a rubble. It had been bombed the night before. By the time we got home there was a telegram there telling me not to come. And then two weeks later I started in the College of Business Studies which is just had just been newly built. And I went to College of Business Studies for four years. Actually, I think it was five years to do my city and guilds, 705, 706, 1 and 2. And uh, passed them all. So you, you were well on your, your your chosen career then at that stage. Do you know that you, you mentioned there about the troubles and do you know that that was the start of that, that sort of era, just slightly before that? Do you know, maybe I shouldn't mention this, but I was doing a wee bit of research on you just before we came in. And, and you know, I noticed your name actually in the Telegraph even in 1971, the, the 1st of June 71, and there was some sort of incident happened about Newcastle and, and you and a few friends got caught up in something and there your name is in a newspaper because of some court case, for goodness sake. Yeah, we witnessed something in Newcastle and uh, I don't know if how freely you'd want me to talk about it, but I, I mean, in truth, it didn't bother me. I was a witness. Uh, uh, a guy was beating up another guy and myself and two of my work colleagues intervened and then the guy that was doing the hitting pulled the gun and uh, you know in his mind maybe he thought we were going to attack him but anyway he started shooting and obviously the police became involved and the whole thing ended up in a court case which was uh, if I remember correctly it was dismissed or he, he wasn't don't know. I never got to the end of that. Yeah, I never researched that. But it's just. I, don't think he, I, I think he was taken to court, and uh, but because he was involved with, uh, he was either in the army or something. You know, in them days, like things, you know, for whatever reason, it never finalized, and we were sent home, being thanked gratefully for. Judge says I was an amazing witness. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing where your name pops up, isn't it, Graham? <laughs> let, let me tell you. I thought whenever you said that to me earlier. I thought you were going to say about the fact that I was the uh, youngest head chef in Northern Ireland. Well, t- tell us about, so we'll, we'll go back to the Newcastle. So it, it talked about the Shim, the Cafe and Railway Street news were in that sort of year. But why were you in Newcastle? That's, that's the important thing at that stage. I used to go to Newcastle every week. My mother sang in the Piros in Newcastle. And uh, so Newcastle was, uh, I would say, it's where I grew up in the summertime and the weekends and uh, when she was singing in the Piros. And uh, so I always loved Newcastle. In fact, when I got married, I lived in Newcastle for 20-odd years. But anyway, um, the Sleeve Donard was the best hotel, you know, in the area. I mean, I remember looking at it and thinking, wow. But again, when I was 14, I wrote to the Sleeve Donard, wrote to the manager of the Sleeve Donard, and told him I was interested in becoming a chef. Would he give me a job? And I remember he took me for an interview and my father had to come with me because I was so young. Uh, I was, just turned 14. It was around about May. Uh, and um, May, what was it, 67, I think, or uh, 68. And when I went to see him, 
He, he was a, a very brusque man. He reminded me of Rumpole of the Bailey. He was that kind of character. Why do you want to be a chef? And I was telling him, you know, trying to be not nervous, but explaining to him why. And he said, right, I'll give you a chance. You come as a comedy chef. And you start, I had to start on the 30th of June when I finished school for the summer. And he offered me £3.10 a week, which was like a fortune. I mean, I was a child. The only work I'd done, I used to deliver the Belfast Telegraph and I also did the uh, milk grain with John, local guy John Patterson. So to be a chef and get paid for it, I couldn't believe it. And that started my career as a chef. Fast forward maybe 10 years, head chef, uh, I was second chef. Sleep Donard needed a head chef. I was promoted to head chef by John Toner. And um, uh, I was the youngest head chef in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Now, the good and the bad, they'd done a piece on me in the Telegraph. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'd come out, head office thought it was bad publicity because, this, you know, it's, it makes me sound like I wasn't that experienced. Right, I was too yes. young to be head chef. Yeah. And within four weeks of that, I was transferred to another hotel, yeah. Ballygally Castle Hotel. Oh, lovely. All the way up the north coast? Uh, up there. Yeah, I was yeah. transferred and brought another head chef into the sleep donor. Yeah. So I had to wait another five, six years before I was officially head chef in the sleep donor. So that that that's interesting. Like I was looking up, I was looking up some of the old names about that time. So you mentioned the name of a man there, John D. Toner. He is the guy that wrote the foreword the, the in the book here. Yeah, uh, and he was a manager. And let me tell you, he was a hard taskmaster as manager of the hotel. Uh, I wouldn't have said I loved him whenever we worked together, because as I say, he was a hard taskmaster. I was a lot younger, and he was. He's only a couple of years older than me, but he's old, old, old enough for me to respect his age and his ability. And uh, whenever I get transferred to the Ballygally Castle, uh, I kind of took umbrage with him because I thought one minute he makes me head chef. In fact, I still tease him that, you know, he gave, he gave me the crown and then he stole it off me again, you know. <laughs> but now he, I would, I'm, you know, privileged to say he's now one of my close friends because wow. when whenever he kind of retired and I retired, we started to meet socially, and now we meet uh, every week. And uh, as I say, I, I regard him as a good friend. He's an MB. Uh, he's now a member uh, M- MBE. Mm-hmm. He's got the MBE. He's got all them letters after him. He sounds so important. It's great, you know. I can boost. Yeah, but he, he got quite high up. I mean, oh, it, I was looking at some of his CV, even like strategic advisor of the Great National Hotels and yeah. so on and forth. And, and in the 1970s, he was behind a lot of the, I remember saying a, a name of a, the Looney Moon Festival. Yeah, he was, he was in charge. He was chairman of the Looney Moon Festival. Uh, I was the head chef in the sleeve, and obviously he brought functions to the sleeve. Uh-huh. And like you're talking four, five, six hundred people then for an event. Oh, John, he's a very, I tell you what, he's a man of high intelligence. When it comes to hospitality, there was very few people I think are sharper than John. He, he knows it all, still does. I love having conversations. In fact, I've had him on my radio show talking about, you know, whenever he done it and all, you know, so he's definitely a man worth knowing. Chatting with Chris on the Down About Down podcast. Your name cropped up then later on. I was going through some of the old papers again, and in and around the 80s, there was a job advert actually at that stage in the Royal Ascot and carried off. That's correct, yeah, in the Royal Ascot. 
And, and I was reading through it. Uh, there was a, over the Hillsborough Road and carried off. It's away now, isn't it? Long gone. It's gone, yeah. And I, actually, I, I never ever applied to get, go to work in the Royal Ascot. They come to me. Uh, Don, the two races, the two race brothers, Don and Danny, uh, and they come and ask me what I work with them. And uh, I had already committed to take another job, I think, in the Culloden. So I said I would give them six weeks. And five years later, I ended up buying the Royal Ascot. Ah, right, there you go. Because, you know, at that stage of the advert, I found it, they were looking silver service staff, bar staff, bar persons, commas, a, a chef, cook, apply, head chef, Mr. McClemens, telephone number. Do you remember it, Graham? I do indeed. Yeah, that, that actually, yeah, that, that was uh, shortly after I started. And they'd only opened about, uh, I think, about three months. And they'd went through two head chefs. And whenever I, I joined, uh, obviously we changed the menu, we changed everything. Uh, and uh, But we needed you know, staff. The, the, a lot of places in the MTAs were inclined to hire young people with little experience because they always thought it was good at people. Where I would be of the opinion that the head of each department needs to be somebody that knows what they're doing. So we actually started a head waiter, uh, who, Nicky, who was a great guy, brilliant at his job. And, um, yeah, so we, I, I was the head chef and we employed new staff. I employed a couple of guys that I knew. And for the next four or five years, as I say, it was a very successful hotel. Brilliant, brilliant. We'd done great trade. And uh, they, the, race, the Race Brothers sold it to uh, a couple of guys from Belfast. And a year later, I bought it off them. Then, yeah, I went bankrupt in it. <laughs> <laughs> 813433. Yeah, 814433. That that's right. What if you rang up now? What you would get? You wouldn't get it. It's not there anymore. It's now housing estate. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, times have changed so much. And that's another great aspect of this book because yeah. there's nostalgia in it as yeah. well, Graham. And I know people are going to identify with a lot yeah. of the places and things that have happened. But this is a life story as well. And I don't want you to go into too much of it because I let people encourage them to read it. Yeah. But tell us, give us a little flavour of what goes on in these 100 and, what is it, 170 pages, I think. Yeah, well, in truth, it's uh, as I say, it started off as, uh, you know, me just telling a bit about what happened uh, after my marriage broke up. I was married for 25 years. My marriage broke up. Uh, I went to, I went, actually went to America for a while whenever I first split up. And then I went to visit Wheels. I had a sister lived in Wheels. And I went to visit her. And while I was there, we went out for, to a restaurant for me. And straight up, went to a restaurant one night, which we'd been to in numerous occasions, lovely restaurant. And uh, But when you get in, well, that night when we were walking in towards the restaurant, you could see there was a tension in the kitchen because I had, there was a hole in the wall and you could see into the kitchen and they'd just done the place up and they'd just put this new wall in. And I had said to my sister, something different about it, you know, and she says, yeah, they've done some different work, the new entrance. And uh, as we were walking up the stairs, you could hear the language coming from the kitchen, which I am adverse to, Chris. I've never heard, I've never heard bad language in the kitchen. But I knew by the tone of the kitchen, there was definitely something not right that night. And uh, as we sat down, we got our starters. You know, all of us within 10, 15 minutes, we heard this, you know, raised voices coming from the kitchen. And uh, that's it. And there was a a second word was off. And the next thing you seen the chef walking out. And uh, I looked around the restaurant, and I, to be honest, I thought it was, you know, ooh, amusing because, you know, I'm used to seeing that sort of thing. And uh, the man, the guy, this guy came out with long hair, and I knew he was 
an owner or else only an authority. And he was going round the tables grovelling and apologising. And he come to our table and he, uh, before he started, I said to him, you know, he said, listen, uh, and he was hesitant about apologising. He said, look, I phoned the town. We were about four miles from the centre of Aberystwyth. He says, I phoned to see if I can get another chef to come out and finish the food tonight. And I said to him, many people's left to be served. And he says, there's about 14 mains. And I said, there's desserts. I said, anyway, in the kitchen. He said, yeah, there's one girl in the kitchen. But she wouldn't do it on her own. And I said, is all the ingredients there? And he says, yes. And my sister says, oh, you're going to try and show off, aren't you? And I said, you better believe it. <laughs> so I said to him, I'll, I'll do it, you know. And I, I get up. Now, you have to remember, I'm a chef, so therefore I'm not shy yeah. when it comes yeah. to certain things, you know. I'm uh, yeah. honest enough to say I'm a show-off <laughs> in the kitchen. <laughs> So I got up and I went in and I and I done the fourteen meals with yeah. the girl helping me, and she was a star. I have to say, she you know really gave me all the help and and I served it, presented it different than the guy with chef before me had presented it, and the owner, uh, well this guy who I found out was the owner, he was you know commenting about you know, and then this other woman come come up the stairs, uh, and the first thing I noticed about her was her you know she had. Nice chest. She was, a, you know, and but she was a lot older than this guy. And I, she said to me, "Hi, I assume your name." She shook my hand, and I said, "Oh, how are you? You know, it's nice to see you." And, and you know, I made comment, you know, with the fact of what I seen first, which she laughed at. And I thought, and I like people with a sense of humour. Yeah, yeah. So I got on well with them. Anyway, long story short, everybody was really happy. We had then had a sing song, because I encouraged them around the people that I had just served and explained to them that I was an amazing chef and you know and I got them singing I had the place singing and uh, so we had a great night's crack and they offered me a job and I said well I, you know I'm going home for Christmas because I'd arranged to go back to my then ex-wife's house for Christmas lunch and I said give me a couple of days and they said okay so I went back a week later uh, went back to Northern Ireland for a week went back to Wales on the 2nd of January, took over as head chef. Eight months later, we won restaurant of the year. That is incredible, man. It really is. But, you know, that's only a little piece. And then the story develops, and you just suck the reader in. You know, because we are we are a nosy clan over here, let's be honest, yeah. Graham, aren't we? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> burn my name from here, so I know yeah, I'm a nosy. Exactly. So you just get sucked into it. And, I mean, you're brutally honest in this book. I mean... I'm sure the majority of it is true, but you you talk about your kids, you talk about your kids' wives, you talk very openly about it. Yeah. How did they feel when you were writing this? Did they even know you were writing this? You know, I didn't really discuss it with anybody when I was writing it. I wrote from, I was writing my story from my heart. You know, I didn't, uh, the same as I didn't ask my siblings if it was okay if I write about them. You know, the way I look at it is, as I said to them, if they don't like it or if I've written lies, they can write their own book and we'll meet in court. You know, and that's, that's been truthful, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, they have read it since, and, yeah. you know, they realised that, you know, I was brutally honest. I never said anything derogatory about them. Uh, it was all... The majority of it's good, honest. You know, I mean, we're all family. You know, I come from a family of seven. So, you know, we all of our own different stories. I all knew all the people in Northern Ireland. Like, we're a family from the 60s, 50s, 60s. Uh -huh. So, like, growing up was not... You know, it's not like it is nowadays. 
Chris Scott on the Down About Down podcast. Go back. Where, where actually did you grow up? Was it in County Down then? Or where, are you a County Down born and bred? I'm originally from Down Patrick, Ardmean Green. So, uh, in Down Patrick. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a townie, you know, I'm from the county. Yeah. Although we lived just on the outskirts, right on the outskirts of the town. Ardmean Green was then. Yeah. I mean, now it's in the town. But then it was just on the outskirts of the town, opposite the Downshire Hospital. And, uh, you know, that was, life was, growing up in the 60s, you know, it was all about music, miniskirts and woof, you know. <laughs> you know, that, that that itself would be a fascinating subject, you know, about your memories and, you know, you're, you're raising your eyebrows there, but, you know, there there's things you can't leave out, Graham, you don't have to tell it all. But, you know, I think nostalgia is just out there now to be sold. You know, people want it. People want to see. You're talking about old photographs and things. I mean, look how many old nostalgic Facebook and Facebook have those sites at Killalay and yeah. Ard Glass and yeah. Torelli and all those places. You know, that's a big thing. And and especially as you said, I've written bits and pieces in the back of those photographs, you know, and I think it's important where you grew up in the street. You maybe have next door neighbour who is the grandmother now of someone who's alive. Yeah. They love to see those things. Yeah. Don't they? Definitely. I mean, we, we had neighbours that like I grew up a couple of doors away from Jerry Kelly and Danny Kelly, who was then more important than Jerry, because he was uh, played for Down in 1968. You know, uh, round the corner from me, there was Ian Nelson, who ended up, or Ian Mitchell, ended up playing for oh, the Bay City Rollers. Yeah. You know, I remember meeting Ian one day in Newcastle, and I was standing talking to him, and a crowd of wee girls come charging towards him. I had to take him up to the back door of the sleeve down to hide him in the kitchens. <laughs> You know, he just joined the Bay City Rollers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people that I'd seen as kids, you know, you see them grow up in different environments and it's amazing, you know. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's so many stories I could tell about Ardwin Green, which I hope to tell one day. Good. You know, because uh, I do believe there's, uh, you know, another one or two books on me, you know. Yeah, I mean, the Sleeve Donner itself, I know it from going in. You used to go every October and you booked a room there and you see around it and it's such a lovely place, lovely location. And you mentioned it in the book as well, about the history room as well, yeah. you know, uh, and, and what a great place. But when you were 14 and you were working in these places, did you have to stay in them then? Is that how that worked? You didn't have to, but by choice. Uh, I remember when I, when actually the first month I was there, uh, I remember I stayed in the hotel the first two nights and the third day I was in the sleep dinner, the head chef came in, and Mr. Tommy Ireland, who, let me tell you, you know, he was probably next to God. He, I, I was afraid of him. I respected him, but it was a fear, it was a respect. But he said to me, what age are you? And when I told him, he said, oh, you're far too young to be staying in the hotel. You're coming to stay in my house. He owned a bed and breakfast. And I went, what? I didn't want to stay in his house because the hotel was fun, you know. But I went down to stay in his house, but... He had a big family. He had a family of 16 or 17 kids and he had a big house. And, you know, I had good fun in his house because he, you know, some children. And they were the same age as me. So, you know, we, I, I I enjoyed it up to a point. But I remember about six weeks in, he had to go to a wedding in Belfast. So I couldn't stay for the weekend. And I, I got back into the hotel for the weekend. They never got me out of it again. <laughs> I said, that's it, I'm staying here. Yeah. 
I mean, you were away from your family. It's always like going to a boarding school, isn't it? You know, did you did the family keep in touch once? I mean, you you you're, you have a twin brother, I think, as yeah. well. So they, that must have been a close relationship. But yeah. you know, how did all that work then? Well, I I had uh, and you know I had six siblings and obviously my parents and uh, but there was a phone box right outside our door in Ardmore Green, right outside, and I mean. Once a week, we had a phone call. And my days off, I went home. Uh, there were some days you got a half day, you finished at half two. I would have hitched it home and uh, stayed the night and then got the bus back the next morning. But, uh, you know, something that was, it was like a lot. The only thing I didn't like about whenever I was growing up in the hotels was I had to work Christmas Day, Boxing Day. There was no such a thing as, you know, summer holidays off, you know. And if it was holidays, I was working. That was, and that was the only thing I missed. But you know, something was a small price to pay. I was still very close to my brother. In fact, when it was really busy in the hotel, I got my twin over, and he would have come over and helped us work the weekend. He didn't stand in for you. Are you like? I mean, you're similar twins. No, he couldn't stand in and let you go. Uh, we're two <laughs> totally different personalities. Uh, he's a, he's a quiet. In fact, the first weekend he was there, there used to be a milkman come up in an electric uh, milk delivery lorry. And one day, you know, Gordon was moving milk crates and I jumped in and drove, nearly drove over Gordon. He fell under it. But the, the, uh, the, well, because it was electric, once it hit a, a bump, it stopped. Stop that, yeah. So he never got injured, yeah. thankfully. Could you imagine <laughs> trying to explain that to my parents? But, you know, again, you know, uh, it was, you know, I loved doing what I do. I did. I still do. I love catering. You know, I love chef and I love the whole industry. I think it's an amazing. I, just, I think it's sad now the way the industry's going, the way the government has wrecked it with yeah. the taxes and all. But you want to get into all that. But yeah. it's a totally different, you know, industry now. Did I, did I see some of the old adverts that they were looking different types of chefs? What I'm going to ask you about as well, because yeah, I could go and Google it. But there's comms chef you Com- mentioned. Commie. What what do, what do all those terms mean? There's a trainee chef, which I was when I was 14, till I was about 15 and a half. Then you become a commie chef. And you're a commie chef for five years. You work your way up from first com- from ordinary commie to first commie. Once you're first commie, that means that your next position is chef to party. I became chef to party over the veg table. Then you become a, you know, a sauce chef. Then there's the head chef, or the second chef, head chef. Chef to Rang, which is a waiter who's also a chef. And you, whenever you're training in them days, you had to learn every position. I had to learn about stock control, you know, about costing, pricing, how to price a piece of meat. You know, if you buy it in at one price, you had to sell it at another. And you had to make, we aim for 64% gross profit. Right. So you had to learn about everything, uh, which is something that uh, I had, a, if you have an interest in it, mm-hmm. that's how, you know, a lot of people... You know, I had people working for me uh, who would have made, been as far as second chef, didn't want to be head chef, too much responsibility. I loved it. I thrived on it, you know. I mean, I thrived in organising every department in the kitchen, making sure there was enough melon for 400 people, making sure there was enough eggs for 400, making sure there was enough steak. So, you, you know, that's all part of learning, mm-hmm. which is why I had notebooks. Mm-hmm. First day I started in the kitchen, you know, a chef, his name was Albert Sargent, uh, a gifted chef. I loved the guy. And he said to me, get a notebook, but don't ever be caught writing in it. <laughs> uh, seriously, I remember saying, what, what do you mean? He said, you, you hear something, you go and write it down, but don't let anybody see you writing or they'll take the piss out of you. 
they'll give you a hard time. And, you know, it stood me in good stead because I used to be able to go, you know, find out something that somebody would tell me. I would write down, run down, write it in my notebook, put it back in my pocket. I've learned how to write in small notebooks. Uh, if you've seen them about my house, you would you would believe yeah. me. And uh, when I was comic chef, I remember learning that uh, five pound a piece done 40 people. I remember a function come in one day. It was a function for 45 come in. And the head chef was giving off because nobody had put it in the diary. And he came running in the kitchen and said, right, we have a party of 40 coming in here. Somebody get the veds on. It's peas and carrots, roast and cream potatoes and whatever it was. And I ran quickly, got a five-pound pack of peas, put them in the pot, covered them in water, put them on the stove. And the chef come down and he says, who put them peas on? And I went, oh, 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 oh. I, I did, chef. Well, what money's there? What? I said, there's five pound there. Who told you to put five pound on? I said, I heard you saying one day five pound a piece to those 40 people. He said, what position are you? And in them days, you, you could done it by hat size yeah. as well. You know, there was no such a thing as, you know, all one size of hat. And uh, he says, okay, he says, what are you? And he, he said, you're, you know, his first call me. And he said, for chief of the war, he says, you're on the vets to people, you're a chef to party. And I went, woo, promotion. <laughs> and when you got promoted, you got an extra, you know, you got money. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there was always a financial reward. Yeah. Not that you did it for money, because truthfully, you know, you did money was always secondary. Yeah. Until you get older and you get married and everything changes, you know, your attitude changes. Yeah, I noticed in the Royal Ascot, there was a man, Morris O'Rourke, in 1980. He worked there, yeah. But he was advertising for a second chef, cook required calm chef. But... Interestingly, it said it's only a five-day week, no Sunday work. Was that just the way they worked there, or was that right across the board in those days? Whenever I first started in Steve Morris was a chef that had left before me. Uh, they didn't open Sundays. Ah, that's right. Whenever I started, first thing we changed was we opened seven days a week. We went from doing nothing on a Sunday to doing 400 on a carvery lunch. Chatting with Chris on the Down About Down podcast. You know, we're going to jump because that's the way your book yes. does. It jumps back and forth, and yeah. that's the way any good film goes as well, yeah. Graham. It sort of then jumps ahead, and you stay across. I'm not going to tell too much. And then a big turnaround in your life. You meet yeah. someone, and that's what happens in this book. You're quite open and honest about what's going on here, you know, in this relationship. Did That person's obviously out there still, and I don't want to know where yeah. she is now, but... Did that not feel a bit weird? Because your kids are going to read this. Yeah. Your grandkids are going to read well, this someday. They, they, my, my children matter, obviously. Uh, I mean, a relationship developed, and it was an honest relationship. And before uh, it got too deep, like I told my children. Now, I, I'm not saying I told them honestly and directly. You know, I had to manipulate the situation, which I did using my granddaughter, who was, uh, you know, she was only four, three or four, five at the time. Uh, but... You know, she worked it and it, it worked great. And for a number of years, everybody was very happy with the situation. And uh, at, at one stage, we'd considered marriage, which we had, had bought her an engagement ring. You know, our life was together. And then, well, as I say in the book, you know, a phone call one night with... Uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't say too much more. No, I'm going to I'm going to stop you there because... I don't want to give it all away because it is so. It, you just have to keep reading it, and you're, you're gonna, you're not gonna sell it. You tell everyone, but yeah. you know, uh, yeah, we get the get the draft. So, but yeah. you've been brutally awesome about it, Graham, and I, I, I think that's fascinating. So, 
Tell me then, actually, to try and get about. I've talked to other authors, and they all go different routes. Some self-publish, some go to you know go to contracts and go to publishing. All. What was your plan then? You know, when you started this, you know, or when you finished, when you sort of seen yeah. you had some together. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't know what way I would do it, and I and I mean, I looked at a lot of options. Uh, I was going to go to a publisher where I paid the publisher, and they you know done the work. Uh, I went to two or three different publishers, uh, and publishers are good at talking. Flip me, I thought I could talk, boys. <laughs> publishers would sit you down and they would start talking, and within half an hour you built, you know, you you know, big cinema releases, and you think you're coming into thousands, uh, if not millions. And uh, like one guy I spoke to from America, he's telling me like he kept bringing in uh, Sylvester Stallone to the, and this is true. He said to me, like, Sylvester Stallone, when he started Rocky, you know what, it was just a wee story like this. It was just a wee story. Look at him now. And, like, he had me sitting thinking, frig, I'm going to be driving, a, you know, a Mercedes or, or a, you know, a Range Rover, like, whatever I wanted. And in the middle of it, I had to stop myself and say, hold on a minute, you know, did you read the story? <laughs> and, yeah. he, and he says, oh, no, he says, like, uh, you know, we have people that'll do that. And I thought, I said, but did you read it? You know, he'd read the first and the last page. He hadn't read anything in between. Because they don't need to read it. You know, they just want your money. And I said, no. Anyway, the school teacher that actually read the first draft, she said to me, why don't you ask? And she mentioned a friend of mine, Raymond. She says, like, he's a publisher. I said, but does he not just do uh, Christian books? And she says, yeah, but, you know, he maybe give you some advice. So actually, in truth, I took Raymond out for lunch. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll publish it. You know, because, and I thought, well, so he actually done it. Now, the only thing I say about when you go self-publishing or any publishing, it takes forever. I Patience is not one of my strongest virtues. <laughs> and like, like, as I say, I started this process two years ago. Yeah. And I thought it would have been out for last Christmas. Uh-huh. But the first edit was only last, you know, so it takes forever. But then, I mean, I'm delighted that I waited and, I'm able to now, you know, say that hopefully a second book will be done in time for next Christmas. So, you know, did you did you deliberately structure? Obviously, we know what the, the turned out products like. Did you deliberately have a plan and like a wee overview and go? Right, I'm going to put that piece there, and then I'm going to move into that, and then I'm going to go back to that, and then come forward to that. Did or did it just flow? Did it just work? It just worked. It just flowed. Whenever I started writing, I didn't have any structure in my head at all. I was just writing my thoughts down. Uh, but whenever it's like when you're in conversation, as we've been talking to you before we went on air, when you start a conversation, one person you think something, and you think, ah, oh, that brings back a memory of that, or do we starting to write something, and I think, oh, I remember when my kid brother did this, or you know, my twin would have done this, or my sister, I had a big sister who still have, thank goodness, but she was brilliant, you know, at whenever I went to live in Wales, you know, she had accountancy. You know, so she knew a lot about figures and we had a conversation and out of that conversation she was saying, you know, you should go for the black, you know, which is the bar we ended up own, owning. And uh, so, you know, I just wrote things as they come to mind and then I thought, well, I'll make structure out of it later. But whenever I'd finished it, I thought, you know something, the structure just works for itself. If I tried to make it any different, I think it would maybe ruin the flow of the story. Although I've I've had comments that, you know, one person said, you know, you go back and forward a lot. 
Mm-hmm. But then I think that's the way life is. You know, yeah, you think about true. something, true. you know, something comes back to mind. And yeah, that, that, that's right. And I think now on TV, the way things are structured anyway, if you're looking at some of these Netflix, but they are jumping back and forward, and sometimes you yeah. can lose a wee bit of the trip. But that's, no, to me, that's one's totally self-explanatory. Yeah. And you just want to keep learning more and more and more. I think I know your family now, Graham. Yeah, I appreciate, <laughs> appreciate you saying that, Chris. You but, Jen, you know, you know, I mean, not, and that's all I set out to do. You know, it's yeah. not... You know, uh, I'm not going to change the world, or it's, you know, but it might give people an insight into the kind of mindset that you have to have to be a chef, to be in the industry, and even to be in love. And I think that's an important thing that I I picked up on, you know, um, and very cleverly. Uh, I don't think I'm going to write. So, the very last page, you put the end and a big question mark. I don't think I've ever seen that in a book that I've seen. Would you believe when they sent me the first? Uh, draft of the book completed I said to them where's the question mark and they said oh you don't do that I said no no I do that because I did not want it to be a blank end I wanted the question mark and I mean like truthfully it took two conversations for them to put the question mark in I, I get that I, I can understand where they're coming from but I know yeah. now it's so clever the way you've done that but frustrating like what you've done is you've just left us on a cliffhanger. Yeah, I, you I, really have done that again. Deli- I'm not going to say more. <laughs> again, deliberately on my part, I get it, yeah. because there is obviously a follow up to that. Yeah, okay. and and uh, when when I'd written the follow up and I wrote it and I thought, you know something, that doesn't need to be told just yet, you know. So that's uh, so you know, and again the question mark. I've read a lot of biographies, and I and I mean they're my favourite genre of book. And I have always thought they've left. And then you find out two years later they've written an autobiography, and forty percent of it's the same, repeated in a different way. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I would just write the truth. But there's a question mark: what happened? <laughs> and people are going to ask, which people have asked me, what happened? <laughs> What's her name? <laughs> Do you, do you, no, again, if I ask you this, then it's like, but there's a lot about this person, you know, did you consult that person first? You're, you're shaking your head. No, again, my story, Yeah. my way. Brilliant. If she wants to put ad, if she wants to take away, let her write her own book. That's class. I, lo- I just love this. I love the way you've done this. Now, whenever I look at the back, you, do you, you do know you have 13 chapters? You're yeah. not superstitious? No, not a bit. Did you know that? I mean, was that, that's not, it's just the way it worked? It's just the way it worked, to be honest. I never noticed that. You know, a lot of people wouldn't. There's a lot of, there's a lot of streets in Northern Ireland don't even have a number 13 in it. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> I, actually, I lived in a house number 13 for a while. Things, <laughs> things like that don't, you know, I, I wouldn't even have thought of that, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I wrote it the way it was written. And yeah. when I give it in to the publishers, I mean, truthfully, if you'd have seen the first two edits, they changed, I mean, well, as I said to you earlier, they took pages out because they think it wouldn't be suitable for the story I'm telling. They sort of digressed too much into, you know, my past. I, I thought, you know, it's part of the story. But then they were saying I was putting too much emphasis on, emphasis on one side of it whenever, you know, I was trying to tell, like, two stories in one. So, I, you know, part of it I listened to. Part of it I said, no, I want it finished my way. I want it. This is the way it's going to be. It's honest, you know. Because one one of the editors, 
went and kept saying to me, you have to say who it is, who phoned you, you know, really mm. uh, aggressively thought I was wrong to do it the way I did. Mm. You know, but I just thought that, that her aggression made me more determined to think, yeah, yeah. you know, something. Yeah. It's annoyed think, you enough. I think the word SRAM. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> You know, Graham, and again, the book is just like you are talking to me. It's just like that's the way it is, and it's like a, you know, this is you, and your humour is also in it, bracketed a lot as well. You know, so it's just you. It's just like having a conversation with you. And that, you know, that's the way I wanted to be. I didn't want it to be uh, overly polished. I didn't because, like, again, when you're talking to editors who are university uh, in life, they think that you know, oh, well, I'll teach you how to write properly. And I said to him, you know, I don't want you to change it. I want people to listen. The conversation they hear in their head is what I want them to think it is. I don't want it to be, you know, oh, and then I thought I would do this, and then I thought, I, you know, I did it, you know. Sometimes I'm wrong, sometimes I'm right, you know. Some, you know, uh, Because one of the characters in the book, which is, again, as I say, the book is 96% true. I've only exaggerated one or two stories just to save embarrassment for people. But there was people that I come up with against who didn't agree with me. And when, that one person in particular I'm thinking about, and I mean, like, whenever I was speaking about the uniforms, mm-hmm. like, was for taking me to court for even mentioning what I did say. You know, and I said, you know, and the book I was played about it, but really in life, real life I said to her, go ahead, get, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't care, you know. Because, you know, the way I look at it is I was paying the wages. I paid the money. I'm the one, like, if it failed, it failed in me. I failed, not them. You know, they didn't care. You know? When I looked at the back of the book, you, you also have, like, I didn't know this, you have two other books. You have Big G's Recipe books. So, I mean, I, I'll be honest, put my hands up, I haven't seen those. So are those, like, they couldn't couldn't be the same style? Is that just, like, an A to Z of, of making apple pies to, yeah. to zebra cakes. I don't know what, what you mean. You know what I mean? Over the years, uh, I, I used to, whenever I was you know working full-time in Chef, and different organisations would come and say, you wouldn't put together a wee recipe book for us that we could give out for charity, which I was quite happy to do. And uh, I would have done it in, in like wee small, you know, pocket-sized books and uh, just different tray bakes, cakes. Whenever I retired, or whenever I was coming up to retirement, I thought I need to do something else to keep my mind occupied. Excuse me, I didn't want to be getting lazy, which is easy to do. So I started writing the recipe books, and and I used it's almost in a comical form. Actually, yeah. before I go tonight, I'll give you two oh, of my right, books, and um, I done it almost like a common, common, comical character, which is supposed to be me, Big G, obviously, and one of them is desserts. Uh, as uh, tray bakes mm-hmm. and cakes and the other one's breads. There's uh, 17 or 18 recipes of different breads and how to make them. And they're all straightforward, simple, no nonsense, you know, because we don't have proof in ovens and all at home. I've made every single thing that's in that book. In fact, last Monday I went out with my granddaughter, who's five, and taught her how to make brownies, you know, so she, and she took them into school the next day and all. I've another two coming out of these. One, one is uh, desserts. You know, different desserts. Again, straightforward desserts. And the other one is uh, 
if it's going to be called one thing but I've now changed the name of it where it's going to be like somebody who's going to university for the first time quick cheap you know 15 20 minute meals like pastas different things lasagnas things that you could make in a hurry but you're eating cheap because when my sons went to university you know one of them you know he had rubbish and, you know, me being a chef, when I went over, I would have went out and bought them different ingredients, say, right, do this, boil that, mix it all together, you've got a meal, which works. So people have asked for it, so that's what I'm doing next, you know. Yeah. Good. Good. Wow. I mean, you're, you, you must have some time in your hands, but I don't know if you have, because you're also involved with um, FM 105, Down Community Radio. I said that like a radio presenter, because I've said it that many times. But, you know, you do your own programme. Tell us a wee bit about that. How, you got, how do you get involved in radio? You, you've been a chef. Or, you know, where did all that come about? When I lived in Wales, uh, I owned a bar and restaurant, as I say, and there was a guy who used to come in most weekends, uh, and he was Alex, I can't remember his surname, but he used to come in. He was a radio presenter on local radio. And he came in one night and he said to me, you know, I was behind the bar serving late at night after I'd finished in the kitchen. And he says, you know, you'd be a bit of crack, Graham. You wouldn't come on the show. I'd do an Irish show on a Sunday night, nine o'clock. He says, you wouldn't come down. And I said, I'd love it as long as I can promote here, this place. And he said, right, OK. And I went down first Sunday night. You know, you got a, you got a good feedback. People saying, your man's a bit of crack, you know, it's a few jokes, he laughs, you know. So he, he said to me about two weeks later, you wouldn't go back on again. Anyway, I'd done it. I started going down quite regularly every week or two and a bit of crack. After about four months, the poor man died. And uh, But the producer of the radio station, every cloud, he says to me, he didn't mind, he was a right age. Uh, he did good in. And the producer of the station, the station manager, said to me, how would you like to take over his show for a couple of weeks? And uh, I said, what, you know, what do you think I'd be able to? Like, I don't know how to work all them buttons and all. He says, we'll show you. I says, was Alex getting paid? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, he said, no, he says, well, well, well I said, no, well, uh, I said, if I don't take money, I want something, you know. I said, so I used to negotiate for petrol or something. Anyway, I'd done it for, yeah. and I loved it. Loved, I could talk absolute garbage, <laughs> and and you see when it's an Irish show, uh, you know you can play. Oh, honestly, people loved it, and I and in the bar I used to have these guys come from Birmingham, the two pats they were called, and they were done an Irish show, and they had done tap dancing and jig Irish dancing, and I used to put, I put them on the radio, people loved them, mm-hmm. and like you know, and genuinely, oh, I just talked. Absolute garbage. <laughs> and I used to phone people from Northern Ireland that I knew. Yes, yes. And get them to go on and just talk about, you know, did you go shopping today? What did you get? I got two soda breads, two fires of soda, I got two Wheatons. Yeah. People used to be phoning up, what's what sodas and what's Wheatons? <laughs> and potato cheese, they didn't know what it was. Yeah. Now, now they do because it's all been brought in. But then, so it was a gimmick. And uh, Christmas time, I phoned Daniel O'Donnell about five or six different, you know, what I would call few people that were well known over in that area. Dominic Kerwin, Hugo Duncan. Uh, and they all, you know, wish all our Welsh people a very happy New Year, happy Christmas. And we're doing a treat. I've done that for about a year. And uh, then I decided to come back to Northern Ireland when my kids started having kids. And when I come back... Uh, I took a job in the t- Cirque in Downpatrick at the Tech 
And uh, I was, you know, teaching and looking after the chefs and all. Eventually I got into the, the guy down there who was looking after the radio show. said to me, how would you like to be to your chauffeurs? Because, you know, obviously, me being the quiet, shy, shy yeah, retiring type, I told them about the radios. <laughs> and uh, so I started doing a show in Downpatrick, and then uh, Colin took over. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. I think you're still doing... Uh, tell us when you're on, uh, Graham. Oh. I think you still do... Uh, there's still a bit of Irish theme, isn't it? I do uh, every Thursday and Friday to, from 2 o'clock. Usually two and a half to three hours, and yeah, I still do an Irish, you know, part of the show is all Irish music. Although I tried to change it now, so it's kind of over the three hours. Just it's Freddie's all requests, whatever people want to hear, I'll play. Sometimes you get people asking to play songs that I would never play, and uh, I would just say to him, "I'll see if I've got it." But if I haven't got it, or I don't like it, I don't play it. It's not in my record box, that one. <laughs> but I mean, having things change in the music world, I mean, since oh. you grew up, and now we're back to nearly vinyl again. I see, you know, you go into HMV and it's full of vinyl and record players again, you know well, what I'm mean, saying? HMV are now living between four and six thousand pounds a week on vinyl wow. in Belfast. Wow. Four and six thousand pounds a week. Awesome. When you think like a record is, even if you take an average of tenor, uh, like that's a lot of songs, that's a lot of records. So you still enjoy all that, do you? Oh, I, I love it. You know, I, I love that whole. And then you know, you make friends, and it. it's like it's like everything. You know, I mean, I talk to people in different parts of the world about music, and not necessarily about any particular genre of music, just about the whole being involved in the music industry. I I remember when I lived in Wales when I was part of that radio station. Once a year, you got taken to Radio Two wow. to a Christmas party. And you got to meet maybe, you know, half a dozen of the Radio 2 DJs. And, like, when you're having... A, I, I was sitting beside Emperor Roscoe, and he's sitting drinking a bottle of Bacardi with a dummy tit. <laughs> I tell you what, the, the guy's some crack. Yeah. You know, he's, a, he's amazing. I love Tony Blackburn. I think the guy's a genius. Uh, Johnny Walker. You know, they're, they're yes, guys that I grew up with. Yes, yes. You know, so I have a lot of time for them. You, you know, know, you are rubbing shoulders on it. Well, you know something, it's it's great because I remember we had a big dinner uh, I went to in London and, uh, you know, there was two people from different local radio stations were invited and I was fortunate enough to be one of the ones pulled out of the hat in Wales. And when I, like, genuinely, the night's crack that you have and they're, you know, they're just there and you, know, you can ask them anything. You know, and I was asking Tony Blackburn would he, you know, let me do a gig with him, you know. <laughs> he said no, but you know <laughs> that's his loss, isn't it? <laughs> and the other one I met was Steve Wright. Oh yes, who who uh, surprised me. Uh, not not because of his personality is just like it is on the radio, but he looked very similar to me in size, stature, uh, and appearance. Honestly, and it turned, he's the same age as me. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, even you know. Doesn't matter how famous you are, you know. The sh- you don't always, you definitely mature. You know, the, the shape changes. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. Well, listen, Graham. Tell me, how, I mean, you're marketing this. I see on Facebook at the minute, and hopefully you'll get a lot more local publicity. How do we get copies of the book? Then I'm jumping, I'm jumping back again. Amazon. You get it on Amazon. It's on Kindle. In fact, in the middle of December, there's a three-day uh, event where you can pick it up, you can watch it in Kindle for, I think, 99p. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Amazon, 7 
And and as I say, it's it's also going to be. They're talking about doing a, a kind of big release. We don't know what they call a soft. They've all these different terminologies in publishing. We done a soft release uh, two weeks ago, where I uh, the publisher I, I signed so many copies, and they sold them, and they all went pretty quickly. Thank goodness. Uh, and now they're talking about doing a, a main release in January, uh, whenever to see how the Christmas, they have all different ways of doing things, which... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just going to go back to what you said about Kindle or 90... Okay, I, you know, you buy the book seven ninety nine, but Kindle 99p, does that... How does that sit with you as, a, as an author? I don't agree with it at all, but they have market research. This is what they talk. They have market research that shows it's a valued uh, tool for publicising it. And uh, they reckon that people read it, then they want the hard copy. I've never read anything in Kindle and then wanted to buy the copy. Being truthful. I I genuinely don't... I'm not okay with that. But when you go to a publisher, you have to... You know, you have to assume that they know... They have some knowledge of what they're doing. That's interesting. I suppose that maybe it's a volume thing. You know, you you wouldn't know that you got more volumes. It's the same that they say if everybody that read it writes a review... It goes further up the list of, and once it hits a certain level, you're then into the bestsellers list. Now, the bestsellers list, you know, I, I don't know how it works. Because no. I say to them, how many does it have? They don't give you numbers like that. They just say, well, if you've got 10 reviews in one week, you know, it can move your book up and, you know, like 130 positions. And, and you have a couple of reviews anyway. I mean, certainly at the weekend there, I noticed a couple of reviews and, and, and people loved it. Yeah, yeah, there's been a couple. Of, I mean, one one woman sent me a message through the radio show saying to me, uh, you know, if she'd known how... Actually, what she said was, you know, I love the book, I wish I had a pillow. Now, I do not, for the life of me, know what that means. Right. And all the woman said I had her in tears because yeah. she identified. And I, I think, you know, well, you know, that's, I don't particularly want people crying, but, you know, maybe she'll buy a copy for a friend. Uh <laughs> <laughs> So you know, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. You do, you know, it's uh, everybody reads. There's a woman in Scotland, but because she's originally from Down Patrick and she recognised the name, and she said to me, uh, she says, uh, I genuinely, you know, loved every single thing about it. She says, but uh, she says whenever you're writing about, she says I know who you're talking about, and I said, well, was that a bad thing? You know, she says no, it just makes me sad. And I said, yeah, and they were typing, you know, and I'm saying, well, why does it make you sad? She says, oh, it just brings back memories, you know. You know, you just think everybody has a different way of, you know. A different take on it, yeah. yeah. Well, Graham, you know, it's a brilliant time to to go out and get this because it's nearly Christmas. Ding, 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 ding. So, you know, it's out there. It's on Amazon. I thoroughly recommend it. Laugh now and cry later. And what I'm going to say to you... It's not a good name. It's an absolutely brilliant name, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's a different... You know, that, uh, whenever I was uh, 40... Uh, can I just say, Graham is in button in his shirt at this stage, and I'm looking to his uh, the left side of his body, and he's got a large tattoo. Tell me about that. When I was 40 years of age, I was in a tattoo shop. I was never into tattoos, never really liked them, but one of my sons said, Dad, you got to get a tattoo for your 40th birthday. And I said to him, catch your cell phone, I'm not putting ink in my body. We went into the shop, and this shit jumped out at me, laugh now, cry later. Isn't that and I said to him at the time, 
would not be a great name for a book. Wow. Honestly. And that was 20 years ago. And and I got that. And then years later, I got that. And, and there's like a, a clown image on the other side. Yeah, sad face. Oh, that, isn't that amazing, Graham? Chatting with Chris on the Down About Down podcast. Graham, before I let you go, and uh, 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 thank you for, for everything, I'm going to put you on the spot. Because we're at the mouth of Christmas now, sort of talking to people over the years, early memories of Christmas. You know, it's not like I, I was saying to somebody the other day, you know, when I grew up, it certainly wasn't a big room, piles of toys for me and one for my sister. It wasn't like that. What, what was Christmas like to you as a kid? Truthfully, whenever we, whenever I got up, right up until I was about 13, 14, because then whenever I was working and earning my own money, I could, you know, although <laughs> whenever I was earning money, I got £3.10 a week, as I mentioned earlier, and I slept on it. I had to give £2 to my mother for keep, and I was living in the bloody hotel. <laughs> she was from Scotland. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but uh, honestly, so like, but in them days, like Christmas for us was just you know we were all kids. It was just fun. I remember we and we had a stocking each and an apple and an orange and two peanuts each, and in the stocking and like you thought that was brilliant. And they used to get a variety pack and give us one box out of the variety pack each in the stocking, Got and me. and you thought you were getting something, and the toys. I mean, we, we obviously as, as boys, we always wanted guns or rifles. And in fact, I remember one year we got me and my twin brother always got to see him, which I used to hate. But because we were twins, you know, there was never any arguments about. But we both got these rifles. You could put a bullet in. The rifle man was on TV, and we used to always go round our next door neighbour, Mrs. Savage. We always called her Granny Savage. It wasn't my granny, but we called her Granny Savage. And when she was putting the bullet in mine, she broke it. She broke the rifle. And, like, I wanted to hit her with the rifle. But my mom was saying, that's all right, we'll take it to Santa after Christmas when the shop's open again. And, you know, we got it fixed. But, like, I hated Mrs. Savage for about nearly a year <laughs> after that. But, no, as kids, you know, games was a big thing. Yes. yes. Not, not so much Monopoly, it was too expensive, but we used to play drafts and, you know, just silly games. But it was all kids' stuff. Snakes and ladders? Snakes and ladders. Dominoes. The, all that. I loved dominoes right up for a long time. I remember whenever I owned the bar, um, uh, whenever we, we used to put in dominoes, and you'd be amazed at grown men playing dominoes and getting, you know, quite, I, I used to love it, you know, because we had a couple of Italians lived in the village yeah. and they loved dominoes. They, like, it was a big thing. As the kid, Santa Claus, I mean, did Santa, Santa obviously came to Down Patrick at some stage, but what what was locally, I think I lived in Lisburn, so it was probably Stuart's or somewhere, and Santa appeared there on a Saturday. I don't know down this part of the world. Well, in, in them days, I think it was, uh, there used to be a big supermarket down where, uh, and it's still there's a supermarket there now, but it's at, excuse me, I think it's Asda now, but then I think it used to be the Milestone, uh, or there was one in the middle of the town as well. And Santa would have appeared, but you know they didn't like the toys they give out in them days were. You know, to be honest, I, I don't even. You know, we used to, we always got a gator or something. Remember, the, I don't know if you remember yeah. the gator. Yeah, oh yeah, they, yeah. Well, we we, yeah. we sort of try to make them out of pram wheels and stuff. Yeah. Well, we would have had a gator between us, me and my brother, and uh, but the trick was then to try and steal somebody's smaller wheels. <laughs> there was these uh, wheels with burns in them. They made a noise. She used to run about trying to steal, you know. My father would have killed us if he'd have caught us with them, you know. 
or you know, he would have turned up and said, "Where'd you get them? Wheels? Oh, so and so gave them to us." You always blame somebody else. But uh, you know, I, I it sounds strange, but whenever I was young, there always seemed to be more love and care in the family. I'm not saying that there's not now because my kids, you know, but my kids that the, their Christmas list to Santa was a wish list for a family of seven. You know, whenever they and they gave me a list for one when they were growing up. You know, they wanted A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, no. it wasn't a May Day. No, no. But, you know something, we bought it then because we wanted this, We wanted them to have what we didn't have, yeah. which was a, I, I don't necessarily agree with. Now, looking back, I think, you know, they got it too easy because now their kids, the less they have, you know, me, it would scare you. But, hey, different generations. Well, are you looking forward to Christmas this year? And being a chef, you know, you've been a chef all your life. You know, what do you do? Do you do you cook yourself, or what do you just? Well, how do you, how do you deal with that? When I retired uh, two years ago, or when I stopped working Christmas two years ago, I not a big fan of Christmas. Being truthful, okay. No, uh, I'm a big fan of you know the the reason for the season, but not necessarily for the. I just think it's too, you know, Christmas Day, I get up early and I go to one child's house, you know, open day, open something, I have a breakfast, I then I go to another child's house. But really, I'm quite happy to relax, chill out. New Year's Eve was always a better right, better okay. time for, you know, it was more adult, as I say, you know. Christmas is for kids, you know, that's just the way it is, you know. But that's because I worked every year at Christmas. I mean, I was never... In fact, when I was married, I had one Christmas day off in my whole 25 years of marriage. But my wife had already arranged to go to her family's for Christmas Day. And my name wasn't in the pot because I hadn't told her I was off. <laughs> I sat at home. Well, listen, listen, thank you so much, Graham. And I, I, I could talk to you for hours. You're brilliant. And I, I mean, you, you could just... I just know you're that sort of character, so I would hope to have you back again at some stage. Yes. But uh, thank you so much, Grant. Genuinely, my absolute pleasure. Uh, I mean, I've never talked as much in my life. Well, that's a lie, but I've, re- <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. Honestly, it's, it's a pleasure getting to know you a bit more as well. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Anytime. Massive thank you to Graham McClements, also affectionately known as Big G, for joining me in conversation earlier. A man who will never run out of conversation. I'm looking forward to reading any future publications, Graham, and well done, sir. His current book, an autobiographical love story, is called Laugh Now, Cry Later. It's available out there on Amazon. It's priced at $7.99. And of course, also tune in to his Thursday and Friday show on FM 105, Down Community Radio. All details available on their website and Facebook page. So folks, until we meet again, stay safe. If you would like to get in touch with Chris at the Down About Down podcast, then email downaboutdown at outlook.com. You've been listening to Down About Down podcast, hosted and produced by Chris Scott, for your ears only.